what I wanted to do just for a brief interim before we start a study on the book of Colossians is what I wanted to do is just do a few of the sayings from Jesus Christ that are recorded in some of the other gospels that are very important, that are pertinent to what we're going through. We did one a couple weeks ago, and that was on on not worrying based on Matthew chapter 6. Last uh, week we also did one on uh, what we called the golden rule. And this morning I want to do another one on a saying that was a very tough saying that Jesus gave to a father. It's found in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, and I've entitled this Bible study, Confidence in a Crisis. As you turn there and get started to join me, I want to tell you a story about a gentleman who took his boy to a pet store, and when they went to that pet store, he told his son, you can buy a puppy, and he thought that his son was going to just take an extremely long time in choosing one of the puppies that, that he would want to be his very own because there were so many. And so the dad's prepping the boy as they got inside the store. He's saying to him once again, son, you know, you can take your time. We're going to be here. Just make sure you pick the one that you know you really want. And the little boy responded. He said, as he was nodding his head, I already know. And his dad said, well, we just got here. How do you already know? He says, as he looked at one puppy that was in one area whose tail was wagging vigorously, he says, I want that one with a happy ending. That's the way we are in our life. We want happy endings in lots of situations. Well, John chapter 4 records one of those happy endings. That an account that occurred in the life of a gentleman who started off with not such a happy situation. Um, Let me explain before we read the passage. That John purposely picks several specific miracles... As he wraps up the book, he says, I picked those miracles to help build faith in Jesus Christ. So when we come to John chapter 4, and we're going to talk about the story of what happens in that text, we have to keep in mind that what is going on is John has selected this story as one of the seven or so super miracles that were going to produce real faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we want to do this morning, we want to talk about that growing faith and exactly how does it grow from this story in our own lives. Before we get into the text, let's set the stage. Jesus Christ has grown up and spent his first 30 years in the area of Nazareth after his family moved back there when they fled after they had gone to Egypt and came back out of Egypt. And so mom and dad and Jesus moved up to Nazareth. Mom and dad had several other children, at least six uh, others, two girls and several boys. And they lived in that region. Then Jesus, when he's in that 30 years of age or so, he begins his ministry. The first thing he does is he goes south, crosses over by the Jordan area, and there he's baptized by John the Baptist. You know what else happens. He's in the wilderness for a period of time. John records his baptism. John records as well that Jesus, right after that time, started collecting some of his disciples, Peter, Andrew, Nathaniel, and they start following him. And Jesus starts teaching them for a bit. Then he goes back up north to the area of Galilee towards his hometown, which Nazareth was in the, in the province or the state of Galilee. And as Jesus goes back up there, one of the towns that was closest to Galilee's border was Cana. Well, you know what happens at Cana. It's his first miracle where he changes the water into wine. And shortly thereafter, it's Passover time. So Jesus and his disciples head back down towards Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. This is the time that Jesus does the first cleansing of the temple, which we read in John chapter 2. And then right after that, within 
the evening, the days, he has that meeting with Nicodemus where he talks to him about being born again at that nighttime Bible study that the two of them have together. From there, Jesus goes off towards Jordan once again, and there near Salem, he is teaching, he is preaching, he is, like John the Baptist, he's involved with people repenting, and even some of Jesus' own disciples, they do some baptisms at that uh, Jordan River during that period of time. After uh, uh, whatever it be, weeks, months down in that region, they head back towards Galilee once again. Because the the Jewish leaders down in that region, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, they are becoming more and more upset with Jesus, speaking out against him. So Jesus heads up towards Galilee. On their way from Judea region up to Galilee, they have to pass through the area of Samaria where he stops and talks to the Samaritan woman. Then he spends another two, three days there at the city talking and sharing the gospel, the good news with the many people who responded. He comes back into Galilee and the first town they hit again is Cana where months before he had done the wedding uh, of changing the water into wine. But now that he's come back into that area we read that he is met by a man from another town 20 miles away. And we pick up the story down in chapter 4 of John verse 46. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now again, that's 20 miles away where the nobleman came from. And when he had heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto Jesus and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The nobleman says unto Jesus, Sir, come down ere my child die. Jesus said unto him, Go your way, your son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him and went his way. And as he was now going down, back towards Capernaum, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then inquired he, the man of the servants, uh, the hour when he began to mend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left your son. So the, ma- the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Tremendous story. Exciting story if you put yourself in the sandals of that wealthy man or that nobleman as far as what happened. His faith is richly rewarded. Tremendous. Exciting episode. But what I want to do is I want to look at the nobleman's faith. We know Jesus' greatness. That's an obvious But what about his faith? Remember, this story is one of those stories to build faith. What do we know about the nobleman's faith? Several observations we want to make. Number one, his faith was born out of a crisis. His faith was born out of a crisis. What I mean by that is simply this. His son is really sick. Sick to the point of death. That he expects that his son will die unless Jesus intervenes. And he's at the point where he is in a crisis. He's willing to travel 20 miles. When he hears that Jesus is nearby, he's, do, he's in desperation mode. He is really, really concerned. For many people, faith begins in a crisis. 
God uses those events. Now, you may sit back and say, oh, no, people should be responding to God even in the midst of, of you know, normal things, and it's unfortunate that it takes a tragedy. Well, it may be unfortunate in your mind, but God often uses tragedy. God often uses, you know, the experiences that are really putting people in desperate situations for them to finally turn up to him. So you and I want to know that and make observation that many times desperate situations in life are used by God to help build somebody's faith, even to begin their journey of faith. So you and I should not only make that as a mental note and to realize that this is the way that God often works, but we should get busy during those moments of crises to realize this is a prime opportunity to start sharing the gospel. We're in a COVID-19 crisis. What a prime opportunity that God will use to get the attention of individuals. You and I, let's not sit back. Let's take advantage of these opportunities and begin sharing our faith with those individuals. Let me make another observation. His faith was centered on Jesus Christ. That's a duh. You know that. I know that. But think this through a little bit with me. That this man comes to Jesus. This man is literally called the king's man. He has that title, that he is that individual. The king that we're talking about, we believe, is King Herod. Now, he, King Herod really wasn't a king. But he was called that in the Gospels. He took that title for himself. His official title was Tetrarch. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But many assume and conclude that since this region has been Capernaum, Cana, Galilee, that the king that he works for is Herod, which we'll, we'll mention a little bit more about him. We don't know if he was a Jew. We don't know if he was a Gentile. But he worked for the king, which meant that he's a person of authority which meant that he's an individual that was probably in the upper class who would have access to better medicine than the typical person. And despite having access to other doctors, despite knowing that Jesus, he would be getting reports, he's working in the court, he would know that the people down south, the politicians, the leaders are having problems towards this Jesus. This man... He could have access to doctors. He would know that Jesus is a polarizing figure. And yet what does he do? He puts his confidence fully in Jesus, which strikes me as something very unusual considering his situation in life. That he comes to Jesus and he says, come down, heal my son. Since this is, this is only the second of the miracles, this man is putting great trust in Jesus Christ. And believing that he and confident he can do something. So he's fully confident with Jesus Christ. That always doesn't always translate into the lives of even believers sometimes. Vance Havner told a story about how he was in an area preaching here in Pennsylvania. And as he was preaching, he ran into a church where there was in this church a family. And part of their family was an older woman, a grandmother, who she was a worry ward. She was one who would get anxious over certain things in life, some real and some imagined. But she would fret and she'd be anxious. And her family, they kept on trying to help her out. They kept on trying to calm her down. They kept on trying to meet the needs. And he said that one evening while he was there, he saw the interaction between the grandmother and one of the granddaughters at church. And the granddaughter, in frustration, was saying, Grandmother, we have done everything we could to take care of this. You're just going to have to trust in Jesus. And her response was, 
It's come to that? Vance Habner said, isn't that the way that many Christians operate? They believe that trusting Jesus is meaning that, oh, things are that bad, that horrible. No, that's the way it should be every day. We should be trusting in Christ, our faith fully centered on Christ. Even our faith that has begun in a crisis, it should grow to the point that we are trusting and centered upon him no matter what we are facing, no matter what's going on. Number three, this man's faith, it's baby, steps that he's taking, but he comes to Jesus Christ in a humble spirit. His faith caused him to be humble before Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Consider who he is. He is the king's man. He's in authority. He has power. There he is. He's coming to Jesus. A man of authority, used to telling other people what to do. He's asking Jesus. He's beseeching him. He is not ordering him, not commanding, but literally he is begging. And you think about this. This is a man of authority speaking to a carpenter, a politician talking to somebody who just does menial labor. Yeah, and he calls him sir, a title of authority. He recognizes that if he's coming to Jesus Christ, who is somebody with great powers and great abilities, he needs to be respectful. In fact, he needs to be reverential, not demanding, not commanding, not pouting, but one who comes with humility before Jesus Christ. And it's that type of humility that Jesus rewards. Faith that comes with a measure of respect, reverence, and submission to Jesus Christ. Can I make a fourth observation about his faith? Number four is this. Number four is he comes with imperfect faith. What I mean by that is this. This man comes to the right person, but with wrong thinking. He comes to Christ. He believes that Christ can do something, and yet his faith is imperfect. His faith has some flaws to it. He thinks that Jesus has some limitations. He knows Jesus can do great things, but, but, let me show you the but what I mean. He thinks that Jesus has great power, but he has to be physically present to make a difference. He has to be right there where his boy is at. He has to come down to my house. Come with me. Please, please come to my home. And and that's the norm. The norm is the physician can't do anything unless he's right there. The norm is that even, even some who claim powers, typically they'd have to lay hands on the individual. But he doesn't realize how great Jesus is. And that's not unique to him. Mary and Martha who later on in the Gospel of John, when we read another one of those great miracles, those seven that are picked by John, even they have some some, um, suspicions about Christ. They believe in him, they love him, they're devoted to him, but they believe that he has to be present in order to take care of Lazarus' needs. They even make that comment, if you had been here, if only you had been here, both of them make that comment, that thinking that Jesus couldn't work over space and over distance. But the reality is this for you and me. The reality is he is here. Jesus Christ is always present. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. For you and me to say, oh, if only God was here. He is. If only Jesus was here right now. I feel so alone. He is. He is here. And so we look and say and conclude, Jesus works over distances. He is not limited by space. This man comes with imperfect faith, with flawed thinking. Comes to Jesus, but his faith isn't real 
and uh, full and complete. He had some doubts. In fact, let me give you another one of his misconceptions. He thought Jesus had to work right away before it was too late. Come down, air my child, literally, before my child dies. In his mind, certain things were too much for Jesus. If it came to the point that all of a sudden his son died, Jesus was, was unable to do anything, had no powers, abilities. Well, Mary and Martha said the same thing. If only you had been here. If only you had been here. And when he says to them, roll away the stone. Don't you believe I'm the resurrection? Yes, we believe that someday in the future. Roll away the stone. Oh, Lord, you can't. You can't. He's been there. He stinks already. He's already decomposing. Fully did not think that Jesus would be able to reverse the effects of, of death. And yet Jesus made it very clear that he has power over life. He has power over everything. The reality is this for you and me. With Christ, nothing is impossible. He can do anything. Should we put in the positive? With God, all things are possible. And so you and I, we recognize that this man came with imperfect faith. There is no trial, no trouble that we face that he is unable to resolve or to help us to go through. Uh, but, but this man had imperfect faith in another area that you see in the story. Something else. He was thinking that when Jesus works, Jesus will work the normal way the normal methods, the normal procedures. When he meets his servants on the road, he asks this question. When did he start to mend? King James reads, when, in, when he began to amend. The idea literally is, when did he start the process of healing? As if, okay, you know, it's going to take a long time. He's not going to recover, you know, instantaneously, like Jesus would instantaneously calm a storm, cure somebody of a disease. Uh, a person who's never spoken in their life could not only speak, but be able to process language without having to learn it. Somebody who never walked could all of a sudden stand, walk, carrying their bed with them. And so he's thinking normal process. The boy is going to get a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. So he limited Jesus in his healing process. And what happens is that Jesus works totally outside the norm. That Jesus works in a way that he heals this boy because he is not limited by time frames the way that we think. Jesus can work outside of those things without the assistance of our bodies going their natural course without the assistance of medicine. He can do whatever he wants, anytime he wants. Now, does he often use those procedures and those processes? Yes. But the point is, Jesus has great power, unlimited power. Jesus is always present. Well, this man, he had some problems with that. He had some doubts about that. He comes to Jesus, believing Jesus can help, but with imperfect faith. Aren't you glad that he did? What an encouragement to you and I that sometimes when we go to God, when we come to Christ and we ask in prayer, sometimes we think, we don't say it out loud, but sometimes we think, oh, he's got to answer it by such and such a date or it's too late. Or he's got to work right away. And if only he were here, if only he would do it this way. And Jesus is able to do and resolve and answer any request at any time in his will. He has great power. And what really encourages my heart is that 
this man comes with imperfect faith. At times I do too. And Jesus often rewards immature faith. Imperfect faith. He did for this man. He's done it for me. And I'm sure he's done it for you. Not only in the past, but he'll do it for us in the future. Can I make another observation about this man's faith? It is this. His faith was shown by his persistence. By his persistence. I, I, I had originally put down persistence in prayer because that's what he's doing. He's coming to Jesus and he's praying and he's persistently asking. The idea that he besought Jesus in verse 47, the, the verb is he did it over and over and over again. He just didn't come up, raise his hand, and then say it one time, and then sit back. He was, Lord, Lord, can you please, can you please come down to my house? Please, please come before my child dies. He was persistent. Which, by the way, Jesus encourages persistence in prayer. Keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on, you know, uh, keep on coming to him, seeking, finding. He wants men to pray always without fainting. So Jesus then hears this man and makes a statement. Now, in verse 48, you may want to mark this, Jesus said unto him, to the man, but then the rest of the sentence is to everybody, except you all. That's literally what it is. Except you is plural. So he says this to the man, so that everybody else who is standing by, typically Jews, that they all get it, that they are, are, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now understand the setting, that Jesus has already been gathering some crowds. Remember down south, some people had come, and that caused some of the leaders to get upset and jealous that crowds were coming to Jesus, and that Jesus was was becoming this popular teacher. And so here the, these crowds are gathering and their thinking is, show us a sign, show us a sign. Even, even the Jewish leaders would have been asking for that. And Jesus is making it clear that some people are coming only for the sideshow. Later on he's going to preach about that. He's going to preach to them. He says, the only reason you're following me is because I made bread for you. But you need to have this, take in the spiritual meat. So here's this crowd, they're gathering. Jesus kind of gives a rebuke to everybody there, including the man. You only come to me for signs? You only come to me for miracles? The man persists by saying to him, not being put off, not, not, not going away and saying, oh, Jesus is reluctant. The man persists and he makes this comment, Sir, come down, lest my little boy... And literally that's where he shifts the words to. He shifts from, from my son to my little boy in this verse. He says, come down. And so he's showing his, his urgency that his boy, his son, his lad, please come down before my little boy dies. So there's his persistence that he is saying over and over and not being put off by Jesus just saying only signs and wonders. No, I believe. I believe. I really believe that I'm coming to you with, with an element of faith, even though it's imperfect. Please, please respond to me. Number six, his faith was exemplary. It's exemplary to, you, to us and to many others, to those present. And that's why it's recorded here. To help us to build to grow our faith based upon how this man responded. And let me show you what I think. Even though he has imperfect faith, even though his, his faith wasn't, uh, had some flaws to it, it, it wasn't flawless, he had some really, really good points as he comes. He took Jesus at his word. Jesus says to him uh, in this passage, Go your way, your son li lives. 
Notice the next phrase. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken and went his way. He believed Jesus, what Jesus said. It was brief. There wasn't a whole lot here, but it was enough for the man. He believed, even though he had no evidence. He didn't get a text. He didn't get an email. He got no, you know, he, he got no message quickly saying, oh, everything's okay. Leave the master alone. All he had to turn around and start going home was the words of Jesus Christ. And he took them and believed them. He accepted it even though Jesus wasn't working the way he thought Jesus should work. He had already suggested. He had a plan. You come. You come to my house. You, you, you come there and this will... Jesus isn't going to his house, isn't doing what the man suggested, isn't doing it the way that the man thought he should. But he took Jesus at his word, despite that it wasn't the way he thought he should work, despite the lack of evidence, he took him at his word and believed and went his way. Let me, let me bring that, that second thought there. He did what Jesus told him to do. Not only did he believe the words of Jesus, but Jesus said, go your way. And he went. He left. He obeyed the words of Jesus Christ. And again, I remind you in that sense that, that he, he had expected more from Christ. He expected that when he went away, Christ would be walking with him. And he didn't know what was going to see, what he's going to find when he gets home. And yet, he believed his word and obeyed his word, though he didn't know what was ahead. It was reminding me of a time when we were visiting in the zoo and we saw some of those impalas. And they were advertising how these impalas can run so fast and when they jump they can go up to 10 feet in the air, 30 feet in one, from one spot to another spot. And the question goes through my mind, well how do they keep them in a zoo? If those animals can jump that type of thing, why is it that we're standing there and we're looking at them in a zoo and the wall's only so high? Because... People who deal with animals know that for the impala, despite its ability to jump high and far, if they can't see, like over a three-foot block wall, where they land, where their feet will end up, they don't jump. That's the way you and I are oftentimes. We don't know what's on the other side. We hesitate. Not this man. This man did not know what he's going to find at home. Is he going to enter into a funeral or a feast? He believed the words of Jesus. He obeyed the words of Jesus. And he went and did what Jesus told him to do. And then his faith, as a result, his faith grew. What I mean by that is really important in this text. He continues walking towards home. As he's going, the text tells us that all of a sudden he meets his servants they with joy are telling him, your son is alive. The fever's totally left him. And then they even get the time. Uh, and again, you, you who are better Bible scholars than me, you can figure out, is he going by Jewish time or Roman time? Is it 1 o'clock in the afternoon that it happened or 7 o'clock? I don't know. And so they end up going, and it, but the fact is, it was the same hour. Whatever it is as far as what time, what clock they're going by, it was the same moment. The dad knew this. That very moment that Jesus said, your son is alive, the fever left my boy, according to the servants. It was a God thing. It was really, really clear. And then we read these words, verse 53. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus had said, your son lives, and he himself believed. My friend, there is no change in the original language. 
from earlier when it said, verse 50, he believed the word. Now it says, he believed. What happened? His faith is growing. Did it mean that all of a sudden, this is his salvation moment? I don't know which, which moment is his salvation moment. But this I know is that at this moment, this man's faith grew even more. That this man, all of a sudden, at this moment, he is believing more than he believed in the past. Doesn't that happen in your life at times? Hasn't it happened that, yes, you've, you've trusted Christ for something, but all of a sudden, another God moment occurs, and now you grow a little bit more in your faith and your trust. Because faith is like every other element within your being. It is growing. It is maturing. And you're adding to it. And you're saying, as I recount the blessings of God, as I look and make comparisons to this event and that event and how God intervened and how God was working behind the scenes, it just builds your faith. And you grow a little bit more and a little bit more as we reflect on the works of God. And in the minutes, in the moments that we are facing these tough times, isn't it good for you to reflect on the grace of God in the past? How God has been working and protecting you in these moments. The lesson that Pastor Tony just gave that had us reflect on God's goodness in the past, how he had protected us as we drove, as we were at our homes, and recount, doesn't that build your faith a little bit more this morning? Which we all need. Which this man is a good example to you and me. He is a challenge that he is one who took Jesus at his word. He is one who obeyed the words of Jesus Christ. That's real faith. Not just believing, but behaving accordingly. And then he courageously aligns himself with Jesus Christ. That idea. That it says he believed. And it's the idea that this is going to be a continuous fact in his life, that he believed and his whole house that all of a sudden this man is going to put his trust even more in Jesus Christ in the days ahead. Think this through. Consider he is in power and in authority. And he is going to be believing in the days ahead more and more in this carpenter. In this one who is, who is unlike all the leaders. As the king's man, wow, his belief in Jesus would not be well received at his workplace. Just like some of you, your belief in Christ has caused jokes and ridicule and opposition. This man would get lots of opposition as, we're, as he's one working in the courts of King Herod. Let me tell you a little bit about this King Herod. This King Herod that he's working for, his name is Herod Antipas. He is the ruler, the tetrarch over this region for 40 years. Started around 4 BC when his father, Herod the Great, the one who tried to have the infants killed uh, at the birth of Christ. When his father died, he, and, he was one of the sons of Herod who got a certain region. His brothers ended up with other areas to uh, oversee. And he is all the life of Christ in the sense that from Jesus being maybe two years of age, but that time they come back from Egypt all the way through the end of Jesus' life, this is the Herod who is ruling over Galilee and Perea. This is the Herod that Jesus had to deal with. This is the man who grew up in a home that was totally dysfunctional. His father, Herod the Great, was, was a crazy ruler. 
under the Romans domination he killed off most of his wives he killed off sons he killed off some of his relatives because of his paranoia when he had in his will that when I die he had listed out 1200 Jewish nobility in the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding area that he wanted them to be slain when he died just to guarantee that there was crying and weeping in the land at his death they didn't do it, by the way. His wife and sons uh, prevented anybody else being slaughtered when King Herod died. He, uh, Herod Antipas, he has some brothers, some who survived, and they are in continuous conflict after their father died. In fact, Herod Antipas rules up until 39 AD, and the reason that he is taken out of rule is he's accused by his brothers of trying to create a treasonous plot against Caligula, who becomes the new emperor. But Herod Antipas himself, the one that this man works for, he, um, he's, he's like his father. He does building projects. He built a fortress nearby Nazareth that many conclude this is probably where Joseph found work during that time. Uh, he's one who helped build the city of Tiberias that Jesus, when he goes into Decapolis, he, uh, helped, he visits. Uh, a city that the, joy, that the Jews boycotted because they wanted nothing to do with this Roman city. Um, he divorced his first wife. Okay, uh, he had married a Nabatian princess to form an alliance, but he divorced her after he'd gone to Rome, and in Rome he stayed with his brother. And he and his brother's wife became real good friends. And he divorced his first wife to marry his sister-in-law. And it, that made for friction between his brother, who eventually accuses him of treason. John the Baptist, this is the one that John openly criticizes who has taken his sister-in-law to be his wife. This is the very one that puts John in jail. John is ending up in jail right in this time period, not too, or not too much later than what happens in John chapter 4. And John is in jail for a period of months that we read about, and eventually this is the Herod who has John killed because his stepdaughter does the lewd dance and he's moved by it. And so this, this Herod... He even, if we read, and you may not have noticed this before, in Luke 23, in about the middle of Jesus' ministry, some come and say, Herod Antipas is trying to get people to kill you, Jesus. And so Antipas and his court, they are not pro-Jesus. And we all know that he's the one that, at the end of Jesus' life, he's involved with Pilate sending Jesus to, and he interviews Jesus and sends him back. So growing up or serving in the court of Herod Antipas, this man, this nobleman, he is not going to be serving in a court that is pro-Jesus. They are anti-Jesus. He's serving in a court that would mock and ridicule and who even comes to a point of wanting to kill Jesus secretly. This man, to stay in this court, to work in believing in Jesus Christ, that would have been very difficult. That would have been very trying. He courageously aligns himself with Jesus Christ. Let's make a final observation. His faith is contagious. His faith is contagious because it says his whole house also believe with him. In the end of verse 53, because of his faith in the crises that grew, started in the crises, his son's life is saved. Because of that, his household comes to put faith in Christ. How many people are affected by that? I don't know, but can I throw a couple interesting thoughts for you to consider? We don't know for certain, but we do know these facts. We know that according to Luke 8, there was a woman by the name of Joanna 
whose husband was Herod's steward. Is this the same man? We don't know. Or was this steward, was this steward and his wife come to faith? Were they introduced to Jesus by this nobleman? We don't know. But we know that others within the nobility, they're impacted to the point that they come to belief. We know later on that one man who even grew up with Herod, went to school with him, who would have been part of his court, that that, end, that believer ends up, come, that man ends up becoming a believer. Was it the influence of this nobleman? We don't know. But the reality of life is this. People who put faith in Christ and are consistent and are loyal in that faith, they can make some tremendous impact. Never ever underestimate your influence in the lives of others, your testimony and your impact upon other people in this life and the next, what you can do. I was reading the story about a preacher in Scotland back in the early 1800s. He had preached in this church (coughs) for a number of years and he had had a seemingly good ministry. But there was a period of time where not many people were getting saved. And one Sunday morning, one of the deacons met him there early at the church and said, Preacher, I want to talk to you. I'm very concerned about your ministry. The Bible says, by their fruits we shall know them, and we don't see much fruit anymore. We've only seen one boy get saved in the last two years. That must mean that God's hand is off your ministry because by their fruits you know them. And so I've talked to the others. We want you to resign from the ministry. We're going to find a different preacher. And so what happened is this older man was brokenhearted. He had been fasting. He had been praying. This preacher had known that not many people had responded. He had invested a lot of time in this 12-year-old trying to disciple him. And he hadn't seen anybody else of recent months come to faith in Christ. And he was broken. He understood, you know, the comments by that man that he would have to leave. And so his last Sunday he preached in that church. (coughs) All done. He didn't even go to the back to greet people. He just sat down at the steps at the front. And there he just wept and poured out his heart. Everybody left. Everybody had abandoned him, he thought, except for that one 12-year-old boy. That 12-year-old boy came and talked to him and thanked him for his ministry and his life these last couple years. He was so grateful (coughs) for his teaching and his sharing the Word of God. And that one boy said, because of your ministry in my life, I've given my life to missions. And he did become a missionary. He ended up going to South Africa and worked for 49 years. Robert Moffat was one of those who had tremendous ministry in leading many of the individuals in the region of South Africa to Christ, (coughs) working within the Zulu tribes, translating the scriptures into several of those local languages and dialects. And when he came back to England, in his latter seven years of his life, he was hailed as one of the great missionaries of that time period. (coughs) All because of one man, one man who invested in the lives of some, a life of some 10 to 12 year old boy. Listen, don't ever (coughs) underestimate what you can do. How you can make an impact. (coughs) I can tell you stories of how the Lord used individuals here that some of you have invested in. I can tell you about how years ago we had a youth ministry and some of you listening right now invited teens from around around Lebanon to come to what we called Operation Teenager. And in follow-up, there was a house right over here, a couple blocks, that I went and visited. 
the parents of one of the teens who responded in, and, uh, during Operation Teenager and got saved. And I went over to that house and asked the, grand, the parents if I could do a Bible study. They quizzed me, they interviewed, they wanted to know what kind, if we were a cult, but they let their son come and to be a part of the youth group. That young man grew and grew and some of his brothers came. He ended up going into Bible college and going into ministry and is still in ministry today. I remember of another young man who came through Operation Teenager again. That young man <coughs> from over on the other side of town, his parents had a house close to Cedar Haven. And he came to our, to our Operation Teenager. He got saved. And he asked if I would do a Bible study with him. So I went to his house, asked his parents if we had permission. They wanted us to do it at the house so they could listen in from the other room. By doing the Bible study with that young man, mom and dad came to get saved. His younger brother got saved. His grandparents got saved. And eventually they all got baptized, joined this church. That young man ended up in gospel ministry. And the last I heard, he was still doing youth, youth pastoring work down south. I think of my own mother responding to gospel tracts given to her and how she in her faith not knowing an imperfect faith she shared what she could with us and then one by one all six of the members of my of my of us kids got saved my dad got saved and within the months that followed my aunt and uncle got saved and then my two now sister-in-laws they got saved they shared the gospel with their family members and in time well, there, some of their family got saved and came to know Christ as well. And in over the years, several of aunts and uncles. Why? Because of my mom's faith. Never underestimate what your faith can do by you becoming a witness for Jesus Christ, by you investing in the lives of your kids and training them in other kids, in teaching them and giving out the Word of God in home Bible studies. Never underestimate what impact you can have. And my question to you this week is, what steps of faith will you take? It may be imperfect, but what steps are you going to take as you center on Jesus Christ? Will you, will you take him at his word? Will you obey his word? Will you courageously stand with him? Will you, will you do some of these things? Will you fervently pray for others this week? In faith, as we do the may God bless us this May, will you set aside time in faith praying for others within the flock that God would use them and bless them? Will you this week share your testimony as we talked about last session with some lost friend in faith? Will you be one who has this time of, of stress and financial collapse in many companies and, and people having, having some extra pressure financially, will you not fret? Will you come to a point of having faith instead of being upset over your bills? Will you be one who instead of getting all nervous and frustrated with COVID, will you, will you display a peace and a calm in trusting the Lord, that the Lord knows what He's doing, that the Lord has not made a mistake taking away a lot of the difficulties that, and, the, and the distractions that we have and that he can use this to work in the hearts and lives of others. Will you continue in faith to meet your duties as a charitable believer? Will you in faith do what God says as a parent and training your kids, even in, the, in this being sheltered together and there can be that extra tension that arises, will you continue to biblically discipline and disciple your children, knowing that God will work in their hearts? Will you by faith forgive that person who offended you, 
who said something or did something and, and, say, and offer an extension of forgiveness and, Lord, I'm going to trust you in the future relationships with that person. Will you, by faith, be one that says, I'm going to do my part in my marriage. I'm, I'm not going to be keeping track of what my spouse does. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do to build this marriage. And I'm going to trust God to work and to move. I'm going to be honest and righteous at work. Even though they might ask me to lie, even though they might, might suggest things, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do what's right and trust God to keep my job, to provide my needs. I'm going to be willing to serve Christ any way he wants, no matter what he wants. I have big plans for after college, but wait a minute. By faith, would you say to Christ, I'm willing to do whatever you want. By faith, I'm going to be a, an individual that I'm going to remain loyal to God's standards of who to date and how to date, I'm going to remain pure. I'm going to be focused on finding a godly mate and trust that God knows what he's doing as far as providing somebody special for me. I'm going to be an individual that in the midst of difficult moments, I'm going to still praise him. I'm going to still give him glory. I'm not going to get frustrated and and start having a, a hissy fit or a temper tantrum. You know, too often... We're like these elephants. Those elephants, when they first come and are first being trained, they're tied by chains and ropes to something solid, like a tree or something huge that won't move. In time, they fight less and less. And then they're, the, the, the ropes or chains are tied to a, a stake pounded deep into the ground, one that, that can't be moved by them. And over a period of time at the circuses, they just take a small stake, pounded in ever not so deep, But the elephant is conditioned in his mind that he can't get away and he doesn't try anymore. Have you been conditioned by your thinking that you aren't even trying to take a step of faith anymore? That you have given up in prayer? That you have given up in witnessing? That you've given up on training those kids the way you ought? Listen, friend, you need to take some steps of faith this week. You need to move further in saying, Christ Lord, even though my faith is imperfect, I am going to be persistent in doing what you want me to do. I'm going to take you at your word. I am going to pray. I'm going to beseech. I'm going to serve. I'm going to be the witness I ought to be. Father, I pray that you would help me and my friends not just to be doers of the word, but to be hearers of the word. Help us to live out our faith by taking a further step this week We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we can be of help to you in your spiritual life, feel free to contact us. Call us, send contact by email, check check it out on Facebook, and we'll get back to you to help you out as best we can. God bless you and have a good week.